hello. Thank you for tuning in to this Bible study. Today we are going through Genesis chapter 12. We're only going to cover the first nine verses, but we're going to talk all about Abraham, Father Abraham. We now transition uh, to a new chunk of the Old Testament, to a new chunk of Genesis, the patriarchs. This is actually going to take us through the end of Genesis, is covering the patriarchs. The patriarchs are Abraham, his son Isaac, Isaac's son Jacob, and Jacob will have his name changed to Israel, and he becomes the, the 12 tribes of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, become the 12 tribes of Israel, and they travel down into Egypt, which takes us into the story of Exodus and Moses. So what I wanted to do was give an overview of what we know about Abraham um, before, and, and cover the first nine verses of chapter 12, which includes the Abrahamic covenant, uh, which in and of itself, this is a lot to talk about, which is why we're only covering nine verses. So before we dig into all this, uh, why don't you bow your heads and let's pray. Lord, thank you. As I always pray, thank you for this time. Thank you that we are able to be here and to study your word uh, and that we each have the time and the resources necessary to be able to spend time uh, set aside to study your word. Lord, I pray that you will open up your word to us, that you will soften our hearts and open our ears and teach us something about you and your character. Uh, teach us something about Abraham and how we can look to him as an example of what it means to be an individual of faith to believe the words that you have said and spoken to us uh, and to stand on them as the rock that they are, the foundation in our lives. We love you, Lord. Lord, speak through me. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, let's talk about Abraham. So Abraham is going to cover through Genesis 25 um, is when he dies. Abraham dies at the ripe old age of 175 years old. Uh, we don't know a whole lot about Abraham's life for the first 75 years of his life um, because when we pick it up in the story in Genesis 12, we know that he's 75 years old and we know that he dies at 175 years old. So we know a lot about the last 100 years, but we don't know a whole heck of a lot about the first 75 years. We do know um, that his father, uh, Terah, T-E-R-A-H, uh, lived in Ur, which was a major town in southern Mesopotamia. It is now called Tel Al-Makara, um, which we actually looked at the ziggurat that is in an archaeological dig from the ancient town of Ur last week. I showed you that image of that ziggurat. And here uh, is a map which shows where the uh, city of Ur is in a modern day context. It is in Iraq. Um, it's north of Kuwait as you travel up the Euphrates River, um, halfway between uh, the Persian Gulf and Baghdad, as you can see on that map. Um, other things we know, it's about 140 miles southwest of the ancient city of Babylon. And here is the map of uh, where Babylon um, is and they do have uh, an archaeological site that is digging up the ancient town of Babylon, um, the ruins there. So that's south of Baghdad uh, in modern context. Um, and we know that Terah, Abraham's father, uh, that Abraham was born in Ur of the Chaldees. Then he traveled north um, up 
the um, Euphrates River and ended up in northern Mesopotamia in a town called Haran. And here's where that is on the map. Uh, it's halfway in between Nineveh and Damascus. And that's where we pick up the story today of uh, Abraham being in that area um, of the Fertile Crescent. Now, the Fertile Crescent refers to this area. This is a map that shows the Fertile Crescent. Um, and as you can see, this is it basically follows uh, the riverbed um, of the Euphrates going up north and then wrapping back down into Palestine uh, through Syria into Canaan, etc. So this is what is referred to as the Fertile Crescent. Uh, and you can see in this map, Ur is right on the edge of it. You can see Babylon there. Um, you see Nineveh up in the northeast. Uh, and then uh, Haran um, is, was west of Nineveh. Um, okay, so that just from a geographical standpoint, the thing that's really cool to me is that the more time passes, the more things they discover about these locations. Archaeologists are finding new things that are validating scripture. Uh, they used to think that Babylon as a city never actually existed until they found the ruins of Babylon. They're like, wow, this is clearly the city of Babylon. And I do believe that they're going to find more and more and more and more things that validate scripture. It's the same idea, same, same thing with scripture itself. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in the, I think, 1930s or 40s, um, is one of the most significant archaeological finds um, in the modern age. And the reason being is because they found some 170-plus uh, scrolls, I believe, in clay jars. I don't remember the exact number that they found, but I think it was 100-plus, that included an entire scroll of Isaiah. Uh, and this dates back to 400 BC. So skeptics used to say that Isaiah could not have been written uh, before... Um, 100 AD, and the reason being is because of the prophecies that are included in it of a coming Messiah, of all of these elements that Isaiah wrote about, and yet we now have a complete scroll of Isaiah that dates to 400 BC that includes prophecies that were made well before Christ uh, walked the earth. The other thing that's really cool is that when you look at that translation, man, this is a tangent, but when you look at that ancient scroll of Isaiah, the percentage of difference of translation uh, from the um, from 400 BC to the current oldest transcript of the Old Testament, there's a very small percentage of change to translation that covers over a thousand years of time, which also holds to the Testament. So the point being, these things happened. These places existed. Abraham existed. Uh, Ur existed. Babylon existed. Haran existed. These are real, actual places, historical places that are being discussed. So now let's talk about Abraham himself. He is known as a man of faith. Uh, he believed God and followed God's commands in his life, God's will in his life. That is the lasting legacy that Abraham has. Um, we're going to pick it up right at the, the opening lines of uh, Genesis 12. Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go. Historical cultural context. People did not leave their hometown and their father's household. They would stay in the same town. They would literally, uh, Jewish culture is that, that at that time, you would actually build on to your father's house. You would literally build onto the same structure 
uh, of where you grew up, literally on the same, it, just another room. You would just keep building on and on and on and on so the family would stay tight and would stay safe and would um, be bound together into taking care of itself. Uh, it's not like today, like for me personally, uh, I'm from Seattle and when I graduated from high school, the closest I wanted to live uh, was Colorado. So I moved a thousand miles away. And that is a very modern thing that people do is they leave and they go wherever they want. So th this is a first example of faith is that God told Abraham, I want you to leave everything that you know, leave your father's house and go to a land that you know nothing about uh, and I will bless you. And he listened and he followed. Another example of Abraham's faith that we're gonna hit on Oh, good grief, throughout uh, the next um, 10 chapters or so, is Abraham's descendants, specifically Isaac. God is going to promise Abraham that he is going to become a mighty nation. The issue with that, his wife Sarah is barren. She cannot have any children. So God makes this promise, but Abraham believes it. And he wants, he has yearned his entire life for a son, uh, for his lineage to continue. That was a very significant thing in that day, as it is today. Uh, and you will see as, as uh, God makes the promise and Abraham is faithful uh, to believe God. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, by faith, when God tested him, offered uh, Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. So eventually in Genesis 21, we'll get there, um, Isaac is born to Sarah and Abraham. And he's the, the son that he's been waiting for. And then in Genesis 22, God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son as an, an offering to the Lord. And Abraham listens to him. Uh, continuing on what I was reading, Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, that he has waited 100 years to have this son. He hasn't waited for 100 years, but he's 100 years old when he finally has uh, Isaac. Um, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be Reckon Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So God tells him, and we're going to talk all about this in Genesis 22, um, God tells Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son. Well, his only son by Sarah. And he says, okay. Abraham believed that God was so powerful that he could bring Isaac back from the dead and still fulfill the promise that he made that he would make a great nation of him through Isaac. Now, those who know the story know that God stays Abraham's hand, stops him just before he actually kills his son, and then God provides a sacrifice, uh, an animal to be sacrificed in the place of Isaac. This is a picture of Christ. Christ being the sacrifice for us made in our stead. We'll talk about that more when we hit Genesis 22. So I, I, I make all these pictures of um, Abraham being this perfect guy. Was Abraham sinless? 
I mean, he's list, lifted up as the father of the Jews, right? Was he sinless? No, by no means. And we're going to cover that next week uh, at the second half of Genesis 12. There's, there's three different instance, instances where it's like, Abraham, what are you thinking? Uh, the first one we're going to cover next week in, in Genesis 12, where because of famine, Abraham takes his household down to Egypt. And there's this weird passage where and we'll talk about it next week, where Abraham says to his wife, look, you're really good looking, and Pharaoh is going to see, the king in Egypt is going to see how gorgeous you are, and he's going to kill me to add you to his harem, to make you his wife. So tell everybody that I'm actually your brother and not your husband so that my life will be spared. It's this weird thing. We're going to talk about it. He does the same exact thing in Genesis 20. Uh, to save his own skin, uh, he's dishonest. Uh, now, God does bless him through this and work through Abraham's dishonesty. Uh, and then uh, another instance of a, a, a epic failure on Abraham's part, in my mind, um, is the whole issue with Sarah's handmaid, Hagar. Uh, God promises both Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have a son. Uh, they wait for a really long period of time, and Sarah gets impatient and says, Look, I have my handmaiden, uh, Hagar. Why don't you sleep with her, and then your lineage can continue through her because I'm not able to have children. Abraham is like, Okay, this is a great idea. You know, I got to listen to my wife. So, yes, of course, I'll sleep with your handmaiden. And I do believe that, that in my mind, that is a, a failure on Abraham's part. Um, we'll talk about that when we get to um, that section of Genesis. Uh, Genesis 16 is where we talk about that. So the thing that I love about the Bible, and I've mentioned this before, the patriarchs, uh, everybody that, that is an example in this text, other than Jesus Christ himself, is human. And we see Abraham is lifted up as this example of a man of faith, and yet the Bible doesn't pull any punches in showing his humanity. And that's what I love about our text, is, is that uh, these are real individuals, and, it, and, and we can lift them up as examples. Uh, Abraham is an example of what it means to be a, a, a faithful person, despite his mistakes. We are not perfect, and no one other than Jesus Christ in our text is perfect. That's an important thing to note uh, that I love about our Bible in, in that sense. So we're going to uh, spend a little bit of time in Galatians, actually, before we get to um, Genesis 12. So why don't you guys flip over to Galatians 3, Galatians chapter 3. And this is what, so Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing a letter to the church in Galatia. Um, but these are words that Paul has to say about Abraham. So Galatians 3, verse 7. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So we're going to hit on that. All nations will be blessed through you. That's part of the Abrahamic covenant. We're going to cover that in, in Genesis 12. We're going to read that in just a minute. But 
Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Those who believe in God and believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior are children of faith that are descendants of Abraham and his blessing. Uh, the, the Abrahamic covenant we're going to talk about, but that's, if you have faith, you are descended from Abraham and are part of the Abrahamic covenant is what this is saying. Um, and then flipping over to verse 26, Galatians 3:26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, the heirs according to the promise. We are neither Jew nor Gentile. A Gentile, as I've discussed before, uh, in, from the Jewish standpoint, you're either a Jew or you're not. And if you're not a Jew, then you're a Gentile. And in Paul's day in the Galatian church, there is this question about, uh, uh, do we need to still follow the law? Do we still need to be a Jew and still believe in Christ? And what Paul is saying here is that, that no, because of the new covenant, it, it doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or Gentile. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female, whether you're a slave or not. Everyone who believes in God through faith is a child of Abraham, a descendant of this promise that God is going to make. And that through faith, we are all united as one, neither Greek nor Jew, male, female, slave, free. We are all united and all descendants from Abraham. Abraham is of huge significance in the Bible. In the New Testament, Moses is the only person who is referred to more often in the New Testament than Abraham. Abraham is second. I flipped through uh, looking at my concordance uh, and found 83 references to Abraham in the New Testament alone. Moses has more, but Abraham is second. Huge, huge individual. Uh, to keep in mind as we look at the patriarchs, as the father of the Jews. Now, many of you know um, I have tattoos. I've got 24 tattoos of verses uh, on the insides of my arms here. Um, on my right arm, these are all passages that are very personal to me in my faith uh, journey. At the top, I have Revelation 3.20. This was the verse that when I was a freshman in college, uh, that Pastor Bill Stevens at UCF, University Christian Fellowship, I felt, I was asking all these questions and, and, and this ministry was there and I went two weeks in a row and at the end of both weeks, Bill, uh, Pastor Bill uh, quoted this. Jesus said that I stand at the door and I knock and those who hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. It's a simple invitation that those who hear the call and open the door and invite Christ into their life, he will have communion with you. He will sit down and share a meal with you. And that really spoke to me and that led me to give my life to Christ. The next verse that's on here, I'm not gonna go through all of them. Hebrews 12.1, very much my life verse. I love Hebrews 12.1. Uh, and there's a, 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 so many more that are on here. Um, 1 Corinthians 9.24, 
Uh, I enjoy competition. I enjoy athletic competition, doing Ironman races, doing triathlon, doing these different things. And 1 Corinthians 9.24 for the athlete out there is a, uh, it's a phenomenal verse about uh, beating your body into submission and making it a slave. That's literally in there. Um, phenomenal. So at any rate, these passages all uh, are anchors for me and, and have uh, elements to my personal story, my personal faith journey. These ones over on this side are all characteristics of God. John 1.1 1, 1 is the very first one that I have up here, but the second one, Exodus 3.14. Exodus 3.14, this is where God speaks to Moses through the burning bush. And God says to Moses, I am that I am. And God said to Moses, when Moses questions God and says, well, who should I say sent me? Because keep in mind, for those who know the story, Moses is Jewish, is a Hebrew, but he was raised as a prince of Egypt in Pharaoh's household. So uh, when, when he goes back to Egypt, the Hebrews, the Jews, are not going to see him as a Jew. They're going to see him as an Egyptian, and the Egyptians are going to see him as an Egyptian. So Moses is like, God, are you sure about this? And God says, I am that I am. Tell the children of Israel that I am has sent you to them. And God said, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent you to them. This is my name that you are to call me from generation to generation. The God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This verse is pivotal in God's character, who God is, Exodus 3.14. This is where you get Yahweh, the uh, tetragrammaton, which is a huge word which you can look up, which is the name of God. Uh, just below this, Revelation 1.8, all the way at the end in Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, declares the Lord. He who is, who was, and will be, the Lord Almighty. And so hitting back on, on an important element of 314, of Exodus 314, is that God says to Moses, I am the God of your fathers, of Abraham. The important thing that I want to note here is, is that he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. I am the God of Abraham. This is some 500 years after Abraham existed. And yet, he's speaking in present tense. Same thing with uh, Revelation 1.8. The point that I'm getting at here is, is that God is. I am. I am that I am. I am who I am. God is. That is in his title, I am. And he refers to the patriarchs and he says, I am the God of Abraham, meaning that wherever Abraham is right now, God is still Abraham's God. Abraham still exists right now in whatever realm that is. We know that there is a heavenly realm and Abraham is there. That's the point I'm getting at. Um, Abraham, huge, significant uh Patriarch, obviously, father of the Jews. Okay, so one more thing that I want to hit on before we pick it up in uh, Genesis 12 uh, is names. Okay, so the very first line of Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, Dave, you've been talking about Abraham this whole time. Why is his name Abram? 
Is it Abram or Abraham? We see in the Bible several instances of God changing someone's name. So Abraham means high father. Genesis 17.5, God is going to change his name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. This is part of the Abrahamic covenant. Sarai is Abraham's wife. Her name is going to be changed to Sarah. Genesis 17.15 is where her name is changed. Sarai means my princess. Sarah means mother of nations. We also see this with Jacob. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob means supplanter. In Genesis 32, 28, his name will be changed by God to Israel, which means having power with God. We also see this in the New Testament with Simon Peter. Jesus says to Simon in John 1, 42, Jesus says, your name is now Peter. You are Simon, but now your name is Peter, which Peter means rock. Now, what about Paul, the Apostle Paul? We see when Paul is first on the scene in Acts, he's referred to as Saul. Well, this, you need to understand the historical context. After Saul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and has this amazing conversion moment, it's not for 10 years that he will start being referred to as Paul. You need to understand from a historical cultural context, the Greco-Roman world, in that time, a Hebrew individual would have a minimum of two, if not three names. They would have their Hebrew name, which Paul's Hebrew name was Saul, King Saul, very Hebrew name. Paul was his Greek name. And on his first missionary journey is where you actually see Saul start to be called Paul. And the reason being is, is that he was the apostle to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. So he went by his Greek name. Peter also was referred to as Cephas. Cephas is his, the Greek version of Peter. Peter is his uh, name given to him by Jesus. You could call it his Hebrew name. But Cephas is the Greek version of that. So I just wanted to explain that. So uh, as we're, until we hit Genesis 17, Abraham is going to be referred to as Abram. Okay, uh, now we're actually going to read the, the first nine verses of Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. 
There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Okay, now let's break this apart. These first verses two and three, this is the Abrahamic covenant. This is the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant. This is also called the blessing of Abraham or Abraham's blessing. Uh, the foundation elements of it are these two verses, uh, Genesis 12, 2 and 3. I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The covenant ceremony. So Abraham's covenant, the Abrahamic covenant has several parts to it that we're going to cover in the next uh, few weeks. Um, Genesis 15 is where we see the actual ceremony of breaking covenant. This is the process at which you actually slaughter animals, cut them in half, and we'll talk all about it, and then you and the individual you're making the covenant with walk through in between the animals, and the idea simply is, if either of us break this bond, this agreement, uh, may we be like these animals that are cut in half. This covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, is a unconditional covenant. Within covenants, this is just simply an agreement, uh, a, a pact uh, between two individuals. There is conditional. If you do this, I will do this. Both people need to bring something to the table. Then there's unconditional, which means uh, this individual is going to do everything that they promised, and this person doesn't have to do anything. And we're going to see the physical example of how we know the Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant when we study Genesis 15. Genesis 17, verses 9 through 14, is the outward sign of the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of circumcision, the, the Abrahamic element, which is, we'll talk about when we hit Genesis 17, which is the outward sign of a Hebrew, of a Jew, was circumcision. The Abrahamic covenant and its promises are reaffirmed, reaffirmed uh, throughout uh, the um, book of Genesis. They are reaffirmed to Abraham on multiple different occasions, even in uh, uh, verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. That's a reaffirmation of the Abrahamic covenant. But in addition to that, the Abrahamic covenant is reaffirmed to Abraham's son Isaac um, in Genesis 26, 2 through 4. And to Isaac's son Jacob, it's reaffirmed in Genesis 28, 13 through 15, Genesis 35, 11 through 12, and in Genesis 46, 3. These are all instances in which the Abrahamic covenant is reaffirmed to the descendants of Abraham. Then it's also reaffirmed to Moses in Exodus 3, 6 through 8, as well as Exodus 6, 2 through 8. And then in the New Testament, in Acts, Acts 3.25, this is where the apostle Peter is speaking and he speaks to the Hebrews that are listening to him and reaffirms that they are descendants of and part of the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant that still stands to this day. So now let's go through what the seven aspects of the Abrahamic covenant are. There's seven pieces to it. One, I will make you into a great nation. I'll talk about that in a second. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. 
I will curse those who curse you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. There's that number seven again. Perfection, seven. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The seventh promise. So let's go through the three main things that are, four really, but three, uh, that are promised through this. First, land. This is where Israel as a nation uh, gets the, the, the promised land. Why Israel fights for the land that God promised to them. It is outlined in Genesis 15, 18 through 21. Literally, it's explained what the, the, the size of the land is, what the promised land is, and it is humongous. The eastern border of it is the Euphrates River. Okay, Israel has never possessed the promised land fully. They will. Another element, the people. Okay, Abraham promised, is promised descendants. Genesis 22, 17 promises descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. That is a promise that God makes to Abraham that I will make you into a mighty nation of peoples. Massive amount of people will come from your line. And Abraham is the father of the Jews, but also Arabs fall back on Abraham as their patriarch as well. And we'll talk about that when we talk about Ishmael and Isaac, Abraham's two sons. Nations and kings shall come from you. Genesis 17, 6. This promise is given. The mighty nation of Israel as well as the Arabs. These are mighty nations that come from Abraham's seed that are promised. Uh, kings, King Solomon, Solomon the wise, who some say was the richest man that has ever lived. The wealth that Solomon had is surpassed. Elon Musk doesn't have anything in comparison to what Abra excuse me, what Solomon, what King Solomon had. Other great kings in the Abrahamic line, King David. King David is the mighty king of Israel. And there's the Davidic covenant, which is a covenant that says that a king will come and sit on David's throne and will step, set up an everlasting uh, kingship of David's kingdom, of Abraham's kingdom. Well, that's a promise of the king, the ultimate king, Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate king who, in the millennial kingdom, after the rapture, after the tribulation, Jesus is going to come down and rule and reign, and Israel will, at that point, possess the promised land that's given in the Abrahamic covenant, and will set up that everlasting kingdom where for a thousand years he'll physically rule and reign, but he'll stay as king forever. These are all promises that were made in the Abrahamic covenant. Blessing. A promise of blessing is made throughout the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, that the people themselves, that Abraham would be blessed. That the Jews, the children of Abraham would be blessed. But then all peoples in the world will be blessed through Abraham. And there's multiple different ways uh, of that blessing. Ultimately, Christ is the answer to that. Jeremiah 31 31. Let's actually flip over to that. Jeremiah 31, 31. Leave your finger here. Um, Jeremiah 31, 31. This is some 400 plus years, 500. I don't remember how many years. It's a lot of years 
between when Jeremiah prophesied and when Christ actually uh, walked on the earth. This is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, and will not it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is a covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is a promise of a coming covenant. That covenant is made complete by Jesus. And Jesus explains this in Luke 22, verse 20, uh, is one of the examples in which you can see Jesus explain at the Last Supper with the cup and the bread. He gives the illustration that this is the new covenant made in my blood. The new covenant is the fulfillment of this prophecy made in Jeremiah, the Abrahamic covenant. Then you have the Mosaic Covenant, which happens in Exodus, which was referred to here as the Old Covenant or the covenant made with uh, the people of Israel. Galatians 3, 15 through 18, which is in the middle. We, we hit on Galatians 3 and uh, we hit on verses on either side of that. Paul explains that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And due to time, you can read that. Uh, on your own. That's Galatians 3, 15 through 18. That is the, uh, flipping back to this, this is the Abrahamic covenant. And we're going to hit back on this as we go through the next few weeks, as we'll talk about the different elements, uh, the actual ceremony itself of cutting covenant. And then we'll talk about circumcision as the outward sign of the covenant. The important thing that's the takeaway from the Abrahamic covenant, it's an unconditional covenant that still exists to this day. So those blessings and those curses, the elements that are outlined in them, they still stand to this day. Continuing on, as we read through verse 6, you see here that Abraham travels down from Haran, and he ends up in Canaan, and he ends up in a place called Shechem. One important thing that I want to note Abraham was wealthy, very wealthy. And the reason why we know this is because it tells us that he had uh, servants, both, uh, uh, um, there's two different types of servants. I'm not even going to go into that, but he had a large household. He had a lot of uh, 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 livestock that traveled with him. He was a wealthy individual. His possession was the livestock and the servants that he had traveling with him. So his whole household comes down, and in verse 6, Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. Okay, so two different things that I would hit on. This great tree, I looked it up, and there's five different instances uh, in the Old Testament that reference uh, this great tree. Uh, Genesis 35, 4, so they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings on their ears and Jacob buried them 
under the oak at Shechem. That very well could be this exact same tree of More uh, in Shechem. Deuteronomy 11.30, as you know, these mountains are across the Jordan westward toward the setting sun near the great trees of More and the territory of these Canaanites living in the uh, area in the vicinity of Gilgal. Okay, that's a reference to um, the Canaanites and the great trees of More in Deuteronomy. Uh, Joshua 24, 26. And Joshua recorded the, these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. Well, how do we know that this oak is the oak of More? Uh, well, because Genesis, excuse me, Joshua 24, 1 establishes that Joshua is in Shechem. And so he's referring to under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. Judges 7, 1, early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and other instances of dual names, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of More. And then the last one, Judges 9, 6. Then all the citizens of Shechem and both Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech as king. I just thought it was interesting that this one individual tree is named some six times in the Old Testament. It must have been a mighty beautiful tree. Uh, but the important thing is Shechem. So I want to hit on some uh, locations here. Uh, so here is a map. Where is Shechem? Shechem isn't listed on this map. You see uh, Bethel there uh, north of Jerusalem. You see Ai. There, there, Shechem, just north of that. I apologize, it is there. So you see those three locations. So he's up at Shechem, then he goes south uh, and pitches his tent between Bethel and Ai. Here is a present-day map, and uh, as you compare in between these two, you'll notice in the southwest you have uh, Beersheba in the southwest on the, the old map, and then you have Beersheba is the modern town that still exists to this day. You have Hebron there, Hebron still exists. You have Bethlehem, south of Jerusalem, uh, still exists to this day. Then as far as the actual towns of Bethel and Ai, um, Bethel is now called Baitin, uh, and it's just west of Highway 60, uh, coming north out of Jerusalem. Then Ai to the east of that, there are ruins there. There's an archaeological site for the ancient town of Ai. It is now called the archaeological dig at Et-Tel, E-T-T-E-L-L, and that's just east of Baitin. You can Google Earth these, and you can actually see the archaeological digs of these different elements, which is really cool. Uh, Shechem, uh, there is an archaeological site that is today called Tel Balata, Tel Balata, which is near Nabalus which is on that uh, modern day map. Uh, and then in verse nine, you have the Negev, the Negev. Uh, then Abraham set out and continued toward the Negev. What is the Negev? Where is that? Where is the town of Negev? Well, Negev, um, or Negev, depending on the translation, is the desert region south of Israel. Uh, the Hebrew word is translated simply south. Negev means south. Beersheba, uh, as is on the old map as well as the new, is a town in the northern section of the Negev. 
And here is a photo that I pulled from the Wikipedia definition of Negev, uh, which shows the uh, gorgeous desert that is down south uh, of Jerusalem. Um, and as he continues south, uh, Abraham is, is going to go into Egypt in verse 10. We're going to start to see this, and we'll talk about that next week. So he goes south. The thing that I, I love about all these different things is that these are actual places. That's what I love about, about this chapter in particular is that we see listings of names of places that now have archaeological digs where they are digging up the archaeological sites of these things. And from a historical standpoint, I love it. I love the fact that we can go and you can go to these ancient towns still to this day. It's pretty cool. So we wrapped up the first chunk of Genesis 1 through 11. That establishes between Abraham, Cain, and Abel, uh, the evil that was in the world before Noah, uh, and then even after Noah, we see with uh, the Tower of Babel, uh, all these different elements you see God uh, working with and trying to give mankind an opportunity uh, to be able to better their situation. But here we see God stepping in and we see in the covenantal system with the Abrahamic covenant, God saying, okay, I need to help you guys out. So I'm going to individually, I'm going to work with Abraham and his descendants. I'm going to set aside this people group, the Hebrews, Israel, the Jews, as my chosen people, and I'm going to give them uh, a covenant uh, and later on, after um, the exodus from Egypt, we're going to get the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, this legal system, uh, a set of rules uh, for the Jews to follow. They wanted to achieve perfection. They wanted to achieve holiness. So God gave them a set of rules on how to do that. Ultimately, it's impossible. That's the whole point of the law and the old covenant is to show that it is impossible. And in Jeremiah, we see a promise of a new covenant to forgive sins. And that points to the necessity for Jesus to come down. It's impossible for us of our own volition. We cannot follow the law. The law is a schoolmaster that all it does is point us to Christ. The fact that no matter how good we try to be, we can't do it on our own. We cannot achieve salvation through works. It is by faith alone. And we see as we study Abraham, an amazing man of faith. So on that note, as we wrap up, here are uh, the closing questions for you. Is simply this, as you look at Abraham as this example of a man of faith, how do you hold up? God gave Abraham promises uh, and Abraham was faithful. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. So here's a question. Question number one for discussion uh, in your small group, discussion with yourself, uh, to pray on, whatever. Has God given you promises? Has God given you his promise to you of how he's going to interact with you? Has he given you promises of the things that he's going to do in your life? Has he individually promised you things? 
whether it's through your vocation, whether it's through ministry, whatever it might be, has God given you promises? Question number two, how have you been in being faithful to those? Do you believe God? Do you hold fast on those promises with faith, the faith that Abraham had? Do you hold to his word and believe that he will fulfill everything that he said that he will? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he who began a great work in you will see it to its completion, which the completion of that great work in me is the day that I die? And for every Christ follower, that's when our work is completed, on the day of Christ Jesus, on the day that we die, we meet Jesus. So the question is, how are you with that? Are you faithful? In what way, ways are you faithful? In what ways are you not? Lord, thank you. Thank you that we are able to see in Abraham and study Abraham as an amazing man of faith. Thank you, Lord. We love you, Lord. And I pray that you will continue to teach us about this amazing man of God that walked with you faithfully as we continue on in Genesis through these coming weeks. We love you, Lord. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome, guys. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next week as we look at Abraham going south into Egypt, and we talk about what is the deal with him saying that Sarai is his sister. We'll talk about that next week. Have a good week. Ah. Uh.